Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 8, 1 through 20. These are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia. In the reigns of Artaxerxes the king, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, of the sons of Ethamar, Daniel, of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, who was the sons of Parash, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men, of the sons of Pehath Moab, Elehoene, the sons of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men, of the sons of Zetu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men, of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the sons of Jonathan, and with him 50 men, of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the sons of Athaliah, and with him 70 men, of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Mikael, and with him 80 men, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men, of the sons of Bani, Shelemith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men, of the sons of Babiah, Zechariah, the son of Babiah, and with him 28 men, of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men, of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Ephelet, Jeoel, and Shehemiah, and with them 60 men, of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zakur, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to, runs to Avaha, and, with, and there camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, <clears throat> who were men of insight, and sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Cassiphiah, telling them what to say to Edo, and his brothers and the temple servants and the place Cassiphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen, 18, also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshahiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20, besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. If you uh, are not familiar with who I am, my name is Alex Reguelo. I'm one of the, the pastors here at Sacred City Church, and I get the honor of preaching the gospel this morning while our main preaching pastor, Pastor Justin, gets to take a break. And I didn't say anything about this in the, in the first service, but I'm going to do it in the second service because we have more time here, right? I'm going to say something about my brother because I love my brother. And uh, I, when I say he needed a break, I don't necessarily mean that he needed like a mental break where... You know, doing this job well takes studying and it takes thinking about, you know, the preaching of the gospel. He's very gifted at that. God's given him a lot of grace there. And I don't really even mean emotionally, right? Where thinking about what's all the stuff that's going on with our people, of our congregation, and, and how can I apply the word of God correctly to the things that are going on so that God's glorified and, and our people are edified. He's also very gifted at that and God's given him a lot of grace. When I say that he needs a break, I really, I mean physical break. And that's from all the yelling that he does at us every single week. <laughs> he has a fragile throat. I don't, I don't know if you knew that, but he broke his throat a couple years ago. I didn't even know that could happen. Right? And I'm a doctor, and I didn't know that he could break his throat. But he literally did that, so we have to give him a break, right? Plus, he's getting older, and he has some bad knees. He might even need a surgery, right? And there's like four stairs over there that we've got to make sure that he doesn't walk up and down too often. So a physical break is what our brother needed. So that's what we wanted to give him. I don't know how he does it, but literally he can be 10 seconds into a sermon. All he's doing is telling us what book we're in, and he's already raising his voice. 
So he's very passionate about teaching the word of God, and he's very gifted at preaching the word of God. And again, I'm thankful to be able to give him a break this morning. And I believe that I've been called to, to preach the word of God too, but for those of you that are new, I'll let you know right now, I'm a little more reserved than Justin Dean, just a little bit, but who knows? We talk about some good stuff today, so maybe I'll get a little excited about what we have there this morning. Today, we're just continuing our study through the book of Ezra. If you've been with us, we've been studying that book since the beginning of the year. And today's really just a continuation of, of what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. There was an account of Ezra's journey back to Jerusalem in the beginning of chapter 7. And as we come to chapter 8 here, we just get a little bit more detail about what happened with that return. If you haven't listened to the past couple sermons over the past couple of weeks, I would recommend that you do that. But here's somewhat of a summary of what we've been learning because it's been some important stuff. Christianity is about so much more than just the truncated version of the gospel that really is so popular in evangelicalism today. This truncated gospel is really only about how people get to heaven. Now, that's an important piece of the gospel, right? We don't want to throw that out. We don't want to, to miss that. It's a major piece. But remember, Jesus called it the gospel of the kingdom. He said in Matthew 10 that this kingdom is at hand, meaning that he had established it, and now he's in the process right now of bringing that kingdom here more and more fully as it is in heaven. So what does that mean? It means that Christ's kingdom includes every square inch of this world. It doesn't just have authority over individual hearts, like many think. It doesn't just have authority in the church, like many think. Rather, its authority is over everything. In Matthew 28, we see that Christ was given all authority in heaven, but also on earth. And therefore, because of that, Christ's followers, the ones who recognize his authority through believing in their hearts and confessing with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, those people are commissioned to go and to disciple the nations. This is go and make his word, his law, his gospel, his ways known to all people groups across the planet and for sure known to the people who are in the society that you're living in. Well, this version, a version of this type of work, was shown to us here in Ezra chapter 8. We learned that after the temple was finished, I'm sorry, chapter 7, we learned as the temple was finished, Ezra was given an assignment in chapter 7 by the king of Persia. The primary focus of that assignment was to go back to Jerusalem, go back to their native homeland, and teach the law of God to the people so that they would have the proper foundation for everything that was going to happen in that society. Everything that was going to happen, go back to the word of God for how it's supposed to happen. Worship, of course, but also education, business, politics, everything that was going to make up that society. The king of Persia said, I want you to go back and teach the word of God so they have the proper foundation. And this mattered, we learned last week, because religion is upstream from culture. All cultures in the history of the world, no matter where they come from, where they are, have been developed out of the religious beliefs of the people in that culture. Now that gets complicated, but we can basically distill it down to this. Do those people that make up that culture believe that Christ is Lord, or do they not? If they don't, if they don't believe that Christ is Lord, their culture will be chaotic. If they do believe that Christ is Lord, their culture will flourish. That's the two options. Believe Christ is Lord, your culture will flourish. Don't believe Christ is Lord, your culture will be chaotic. Well, King Darius knew this. King Darius didn't know of Jesus, but the Bible tells us that he knew of the God of heaven. And he knew that if Jerusalem, which was under his earthly authority at the time, if it wasn't going to be chaotic... If that society wasn't going to be chaotic, then they needed the law of the God of heaven. Oh, if our civil magistrates now would know what King Darius knew. King Darius even gave Ezra some specific things to do in addition to teaching the law. Justin mentioned three of them. He said that he, that he was supposed to go back and beautify the temple, improve the proper worship of God. He was also going to give clergy tax exemptions. And he was to appoint civil magistrates and judges in that area. 
all these things were going to be important in whether or not that society was going to flourish. So again, we learned that these people in the midst of a pagan culture weren't just supposed to be faithful to the religious or their spiritual practices. Rather, after their hearts were changed by those, that religious worship, they were supposed to work for reform and even what we would call Christianize that pagan chaotic culture. They were to take the law of God of heaven to every square inch of the society that they lived in. It's no different for us. How do we push back against a chaotic culture with Christian culture? What do Christians do in the midst of a world where everything seems to be going downhill? We first repent of how we have been thinking and how we have been living, and then we have faith for the Christianization of that world as we take Christ and his word to every square inch of it. That's what God was calling Ezra to do. So as we come to chapter 8 here this morning, we see what Ezra thought was necessary if that was going to happen. What are some things that are necessary if God's people are going to reform a culture? That's the question that we're answering today. I see three big pieces from this passage. You're probably asking how I got any points out of just a bunch of lists of names and numbers, but I see three big pieces out of this passage that's going to, that we're going to need if we're going to reform a culture. I try to make them easy to remember. Three Ps. We have people, planning, and provision. People, planning, and provision. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into it. Father God, we thank you for already what has happened, Lord, that, as I mentioned, you, the most significant thing that happens is you actually call us into worship of yourself. Lord, we don't get to just choose to come into that. You call us, you invite us into that, Lord, and we just get to respond with true hearts, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you would apply your truth to those hearts, or that you would open up hearts, allow us to hear your gospel being preached, allow us to hear what the word of God teaches, Lord, and be able to respond faithfully to that. We won't do that without you. So may your spirit be present and moving today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask for your forgiveness ahead of time because I've had a cold this week and my voice is less than ideal and I've already preached once, so I'm hoping it stays with me. First thing we see is people. Ezra needed a team, right? I played sports growing up. I know Justin was a wrestler. I never did really any one-on-one sports. Why? Because I liked being on a team. Well, we see Ezra here also need a team. The king gives him this huge assignment, and the first thing Ezra knows is that he's not going to be able to carry out this assignment by himself. He's going to need people to be with him. Now, I don't know about you, and this, this didn't actually land, so maybe I'm off here, but this reminds me of Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, right? For those of you that are old enough for that movie reference, what was the famous line? That's what last, the people said last service. That is a famous line. That's not the line I'm talking about. He said, who's coming with me? Right? You remember that part? Who's coming with me? Now, Tom only got one person to come with him, I think. But as Rebecca knows very well, Ezra got a few more to come with him. So we see verses 1 through 14, what's that, what that is called, it's called a genealogy. Now, you probably, probably, like all of us in our daily Bible reading plan, I'm not going to attempt to reread all of those names because that's what we do, right? Maybe we read it, maybe we read through it, but we're probably skimming, we're probably zooming through it, only doing it because of the guilt we feel if we actually were just to fully skip over it, but that's what we do. We probably ask, what, why in the world are these names, why in the world are these numbers in here, and what in the world are we supposed to get out of them? Well, some things to think about when we come to what these genealogy passages in the Bible is to first and foremost remember that even though they're just names and they're numbers, it is the word of God that we're reading which means it's theanoustos, literally God-breathed. These words were inspired by God himself, and it's not the words that are meaningless or unimportant. It is us who aren't able to actually see them for what they are. These words are the words that Almighty God thought were important enough for us to read and study, so that should cause us to have a certain reverence for every single one of them, right? That's why we have people stand during the reading of God's word, because it deserves, no matter what it's read, to be revered. But we should also work hard at trying 
to figure out what's in these words that he wants us to know. We don't just read through it and kind of skip by it. We should be thinking what is in here that God wants us to know. Because these words show us something about God. They show us something about what he, who he is. They show us about something about what he's like. Well, one of the most important things that I think we can take from this particular genealogy is this list of names and numbers of these people <clears throat> is that that was an important, important part of recording history. That's kind of how they did things back then. It's probably different from what we're used to. We're used to events, right, to look back. What event has happened in history? Well, these people, a big part of recording history for them was names. But Ezra, including this genealogy here, speaks to the importance with those names of the people in God's story. People, regardless of their significance, are an important part of God's story. We learned this in the beginning. People are the crown jewel of God's creation. And it was a people that God wanted for himself. People have this special place in the eyes of God. So Ezra, carried along by the Holy Spirit, records the people in our history that were a part of this important journey to highlight that. To highlight that it's people that he uses. This list is important for God's people that came after the people of this list, which would include us thousands of years later. And it's important because we can read it and remember our spiritual descendants, which is what they are, and see what they were willing to do for God. Remember what Ezra was trying to do. He was leading them in rebuilding this worshiping community that was then supposed to go out and impact what their society was going to look like, how it was going to function. This was no easy task. This was asking a lot of these people. Leave what they had been used to in Babylon. Many of them had never even seen Jerusalem or had experienced living like the people of God were supposed to live. They would have lots of things to be uncertain about, lots of things to be anxious about. Even just the long journey to get there would have been enough. Some of them weren't going to make it. Some of them may die of sickness or fatigue or maybe even be attacked by bandits. They could have very easily have been so ingrained into the culture of the people who they were living amongst in Babylonia that living a different way would have seemed radical to them and not that attractive. So plenty of reasons for them to just stay put there in Babylon and not go anywhere. But these people listed chose to go anyway. More than likely, they had to look to their family that had maybe left 20 years prior to this. They had to look to and remember their descendants and long history of their families who were worshiping God and living for God. We would be wise to do the same. If we are going to do what God's called us to do in these cities, in this life, God wants us to look back at people who have been faithful to him in our past, in our history, and be inspired to be faithful to him in our time. We don't just read a list of names like this, remember what they did, and say, oh, good for them. I'm sure glad they did that back then. No, we look back at what they did, remember God used them in a specific way to carry out his story, and remember that their story is part of our story. For us to be where we're at right now, Christians who, by God's grace, are living in a culture and we're trying to push back the darkness of that chaotic culture, these people had to do what they did. They had to be characters in the story of redemption and play their part so that God's story could move forward. They are part of our history as God's people. And here's what's amazing. We as God's people will also be part of history. The lives of Christians and non-Christians in the future will in some way be impacted by what we choose to do with our lives right now. What type of history do we want to be a part of? What kind of story do we want the people in the future to look back and read about us? Will we be faithful to what God's called us to do as his people? Or will we be faithful to whatever it is we feel like doing? That's a question we want to be asking. And so this list shows us that in general, people are necessary. They were necessary if Ezra was going to complete his assignment. But this list also shows us as we read that's some more, more things about specific people and their importance. We see that in this particular genealogy, only men are recorded. 
Ezra describes them as the heads of the father's houses. This was a society in which the head of the family bore profound responsibility and was in a position to influence many others in the family to join him. Therefore, Ezra addresses him specifically, the heads of the family. This is far different from our individualistic society, isn't it? This has been under attack in our society for a long time. You don't really see heads of families anymore. The family is not as important in our culture as the individual is in our culture. Part of this is because men have abdicated their responsibility as head of their own households, let alone having any sort of influence on their extended families. Many of us are a product of that problem. Well, this has not been a good thing for our society. Listen to some of these statistics on children who actually grow up with an involved father. Again, this isn't a God-fearing, Christ-loving, Bible-believing father. This is just an involved father. 39% more likely to earn A's in school. 45% less likely to repeat a grade. 60% less likely to be suspended from school. Two times more likely to go to college and find a stable employment after college. 75% less likely to have a child as a teenager. And 80% less likely to do time in prison. Heads of households push back against chaotic culture. But our culture has been shaped in a way where fathers are seen as expendable. Take them or leave them. Women are strong and can be independent anyway. They can do everything a man can do and can do that anything and everything without them. Raising a family is no different. That's the way our culture thinks. It's chaos. And according to the word of God here, we will have to push back that darkness and get back to men being the heads of their families if a Christian culture is going to happen. Just a quick teaching that is somewhat of an aside, but I think necessary with some recent things that have happened in our culture. And I probably haven't done my job if I haven't said something where somebody sends an email, and the email that we give at the end is Pastor Justin's email. So it's okay for you to send as much as you want. But listen, God in the Bible tells us that there's two genders, and he also tells us what men and women are for. We don't actually get to decide what men and women are for on our own. And our culture definitely doesn't get to decide it either. But Disney, our President Joe Biden, and even Fox News all have recently said or done things that spit in the face of that truth. It seems that they want to get rid of the God-given genders and would totally reject any sort of God-given roles for those genders. So again, Things that you would think would be for our community, for the flourishing of this world, totally reject the way that God created it. That's what seems to be the understanding for people even in reformed circles, though, unfortunately, is that God actually, with the genders, only assigns roles to these people. But God didn't just give men and women roles that's disconnected from everything else that he teaches us in Scripture. God gives men and women natures. That's how he created them when he created the first human beings. He created males in a specific way and gave them a nature, and he created females in a specific way, and he gave them a nature. The roles that are discussed in Scripture are not just there because the Bible was written to a certain people with a certain type of culture at a certain time when this mattered. The roles are discussed in Scripture and given to men and women they're there because they are in alignment with the nature that God gave to men and women. He created men and women, and he gave them these roles. So whatever role they have is a glorious role. That's an important thing to see. Whatever role they have, whatever role he's given them is a glorious role. And it's glorious because it's in their nature. So men have been given this role of leading their homes and leading in the church. That's a glorious role because it's in the nature, it's in men's nature to lead. Therefore, that's where they will thrive the most 
contribute the best to society, to the body of Christ, and to the community that they're in. Women are given the roles of helpmate to their husbands, enrichers of their husbands. They are bringers of life into this world, and they are creators of oases of joy and peace in their homes. Those are glorious roles. And they're glorious because they are in alignment with women's nature. And therefore, that is where they will thrive the most, contribute best to their families, the body of Christ, and the community that they live in. It's not just a role thing that we have to try and force ourselves to accept, and it's definitely not something where we have to feel bad for the opposite sex because we think they got some short end of the stick. It's about how God created each gender. I heard a preacher say one time that it's not just male and female roles assigned, it's male and female natures that he designed. And going against this design is not only unnatural, but it's unbiblical and will only end up in chaotic culture like we are seeing in our society today. So again, we have to get back to men taking on the head of the family role if we're going to do what God's called us to do. And along with that, we are going to have to have families that follow those heads. Now, most of this point we get by implication. There isn't any specific mention of families in this particular text, but if we look ahead to verse 21, we see that Ezra calls for prayer and fasting. We'll see that next week. But he does that. He calls for prayer and fasting for them and their children so that they would have a safe journey. So we know it's more than men that are actually on this journey. Now, how successful do you think God's people were going to be at Christianizing their society if these men are trying to lead, but their wives and their children are not following them? God's called out people is made up of more than just men who lead. The role of all other people are extremely important for the kingdom of God to move forward. We need everybody. Hezer wasn't just calling these men to come with them and telling them to leave their families behind or somehow disconnect their religious life with their family life. Ezra was calling all of these people to return back to living the way God has called his people to live when he first chose them to be his people. So if this assignment that Ezra was given was going to be accomplished, it was going to be a family affair. Again, the same goes for us. Our vision here at Sacred City Church is multi-generational. We want to see legacies be born out of the families that make up this church. Generation upon generation of families who have the faith for the discipling of our community that Jesus has called us to. Scott County, Davenport, Bettendorf, all should look more Christian in 200 years than it looks right now. The stat of being the 27th least church city in the United States should be reversed. Let's be the most church city in the United States. And let's be the most church city because we still have deans. We still have Arguellos. We still have Spikestras. We still have Waldens. We still have Olsons. We still have Bakkens. We still have Gamels. Right? We still have all the families that make up this church that stay in this covenant community because they love Jesus and they want to be on mission with this covenant community. Think about that. I'll just use myself and my family because I have a big family and I have a lot of boys. If each of my kids continue to follow Jesus, stay in this covenant community and are fruitful and multiply. Listen to this part. Let's say they all try to tie or even beat their mom and dad in that area. So they all have about six or seven kids. They raise those children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and in this covenant community. And then their kids follow the same path. And then their kids follow that same path. That's a whole church in just a few generations of Arguellos. Now multiply that by all the families that we have up that make up this church. Now you have this massive amount of people who have been changed by grace and by the benefits of living in this covenant community who love Jesus, love his word, see it as the ultimate authority in their life, and follow it for how they're supposed to live their life. Now you add in all of those people living in community and on mission, 
Do you see how the culture would not stand a chance against us? Do you see how God's kingdom can come on earth as it is in heaven? We don't just have to sit on our hands and wait for Jesus to return. Especially don't have to do that while 80% of our children who grow up in the church, by the time they're 18, end up leaving the church. It doesn't have to be that way. We can live the way God has called us to live, have faith for our children as we raise them up in the way that they should go, that when they grow older, they will not depart. We can carry out the mission that God's gave us, and if we do, we will see this world look more like heaven than it does now. That's what we want. That's the type of story that I want to be a part of, a story where people in the future can look back at us See how we lived and have something to follow like we were able to look back at these people in Ezra. I hope all of us want the same. And if it's going to happen, it's not just going to be men. It's going to be whole families on board with that vision. The last thing we see about people here in Ezra is that Ezra needed some of these people to be leading men and men of insight. Not just heads of families like the list we see in verses 1 through 14, but leading men, and we see those named in verse 16. Verse 16, it says, Then I sent for Eleazar and Ariel and Shemaiah and Elnathan and Jerob and Elnathan and Nathan and Zechariah and Meshulam, leading men. And then for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. So leading men, men of insight, is something that Ezra needed. We don't know exactly what's meant by those phrases, but it seems that these men were given specific giftings, and they had influence not just over their families, but in also in the community at large. Ezra calls on them when he needs to get something done. We'll talk more about that when we get to the provision piece, but these men seem to be men who had already shown that they were faithful in their leadership. We also need this. We need men who have a proven track record, Men who have faithfully loved God and have developed a character that is Christ-like. Men who take ownership of their own maturity and character, who are quick to repent when they mess up and are willing to let other iron into their lives so that they can be sharpened. Men who have then started families and lead those families well, who have wives that come under the mission that God has these men on and help them in that mission. Men who have children who are obedient and are being raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Men who aspire to be leaders in their church community and give themselves to studying of the scriptures and teaching others what those scriptures lay out. Men who can be courageous and do something that may seem radical to the people in our culture, including even Christians in our culture. Maybe even some Christians that are in our church. We as elders have heard that some of our people have sensed a shift maybe in the teaching or overall vision that we have here at this church. There's questions like, are we still gospel-centered? Are we fo- why are we focusing so much on what seem to be secondary issues? These are great questions, and we invite these questions. We want people to hear what we say, ask questions about what we're teaching, and give us those questions. We understand why there seems to be a shift, but let me tell you, there is no shift. We have always been about making disciples, planning churches, and renewing this city for the glory of God. The sense and change may be because as we continue to study the scriptures together and they reveal to us more and more what that mission should look like, we are going to press into that mission more and more in specific ways. We want you to know that we're serious about that mission. We're serious about it getting done. It's not just something that we can stick on a wall or say from sage so that we sound cool. We really want to do it. And we want to do it because that's what we believe the Bible calls us to. We believe the Bible has called us to go and disciple the nation, go and disciple whatever society you live in, and that's the mission that we're going to see through. That's the mission that we're going to be on. But with that, we know that not everyone is going to be on board with being serious about that mission, seeing the same thing here in Ezra. In Ezra's time, there were more than 40,000 Israelites that left the first time to go back to Jerusalem. And there's still more than these 5,000 that we see in chapter 8. There were some people 
who were very comfortable claiming to be an Israelite, but not actually participating in the work that God called them to do. These people stayed in exile, stayed among pagan societies of the Persian Empire. They didn't have faith for the work that God was calling his people to do, so they stayed. We don't want it to be the same now. It is our desire that everyone in our church would come under the mission that we are on and join us as we have faith for what God is going to do through this church. We want to be a people that are in it for the long term. Think multi-generational, county over country. But again, we can assume that not everyone is going to be on board with that. And that's sad. That's very sad. But what would be more sad is if we had no one who would join us in that vision, which I think maybe could happen. But God always seems to call a remnant of his people to stay faithful to his work. So we, as elders, have this humble confidence that there will be people who will stay faithful to the mission that we're on. And we know if that's going to happen, again, we're going to need leading men to step into roles to help us do that. Men who can be the new Eleazars and Ariels and El Nathans. Men who lead in this community, starting businesses and starting schools, starting ministries, getting into politics, and are doing that under the authority of the Word of God. That's a lot that needs to happen. We know that there's a lot that needs to happen. But without people, it won't happen. That's the first point. Second point is without planning, it's not going to happen either. Planning is the second most significant thing that we can take from this passage. Now, Ezra was an organized dude and a careful planner. For many of us, this is probably the boring part. If that's you, I'm right there with you. Planning is not as exciting as vision. It's not as exciting as adventure. But it is a necessary component to God's work being accomplished. Again, think about what Ezra was being asked to do. Take around 5,000 people away from the lives that they are used to living, go on a four-month journey to a place that most of them have never been, and then when you get there, rebuild an entire community that's going to worship God properly when most of these people had never experienced doing that before, and then with those same people, go and change the entire society so that everything that happens is carried out according to the law of God. Oh yeah, do that while all the other people around you are going to be in opposition to everything that you're doing. When you lay it out like that, it's easy to see that these people had no chance of getting it done without God's grace, without God's help. But I think when we come up against something like this, many Christians, the tendency that they have when they come up against something challenging or they don't have an easy answer to is to really just think things like, well, I just got to have faith. I just need to leave this one up to God. That's not what we see Ezra doing. We see that Ezra planned carefully. And that didn't mean that he didn't have faith in God. Like we mentioned before in verse 21, he plans this time of fasting and prayer to seek the blessing of God upon his team. But with that faith came planning from Ezra. In commenting on this passage, Derek Thomas, a commentator, says, Faith in planning, just as salt and pepper belong together. You shouldn't have one without the other. Planning for something like this was an act of faith, not evidence that he didn't have any. We experienced this as elders a few months back. We recognized that there was this teaching piece from our MC model that was missing. We knew that if we needed to do something different, we were going to have to make the choice that might seem radical to some of our people, and we unfortunately might even lose some of our people as a result of it. But we decided to think about it, to pray about it, to discuss it, and we stepped out in faith and made the decision to push pause on these MC gatherings. We did that because we believe that's what God was calling us to do. But it didn't stop there, right? We didn't just say, hey, let's just plan this thing on Wednesdays and show up on Wednesday nights and just go off the cuff and talk about a few things that might be helpful for our people. Justin could probably do that, right? Guy likes to talk, has a lot of things to say. He's passionate about what he knows, But we decided that there needed to be more planning if this thing was going to be successful. 
So what we did is we scheduled a time. We went up to Bellevue, Iowa, stayed in a Airbnb as elders, and we sketched out everything that we thought needed to be taught on in this leadership institute. We figured out who was going to teach it. We figured out what order it was going to happen in, and we figured out how we were going to get it all done in 12 weeks. And that, that planning still continues to happen on a weekly basis. We're always talking about how can we do this better, what needs to change, what's going to happen in the future. Hopefully you guys have benefited from some of that planning. So we had faith in the Leadership Institute that it was the right thing for our church, right? We had faith that God is going to use it and that he has used it already in a mighty way, but we still did our part, right? We still tried to plan it as best we possibly can so that it could go well. The people in Ezra here benefited from his planning for sure. Here are just some examples of his careful planning. He kept this detailed list of the heads of families that we, re- that we read. And no doubt there was, he was aware of everyone else in all of those families. And he did that so he knew exactly who was with them in case they lost someone, but also so that when they got to Jerusalem, he knew exactly who was there so that he could start to assign roles for the people that needed to do the work. He planned the meeting spot that we see there in verse 15. He planned for them to stay in that meeting spot for three days because he had this whole list of things that needed to get done in that three days. And during this three days, while some in his camp may have thought that it was foolish to stick around for three days when they should get going on their journey, Ezra, because of his patience and organization, was able to recognize that they were without any of the sons of Levi. Had he just went with his zeal for the vision that God gave him, or the people's excitement to get going on the journey, he may have missed this, and this would have been detrimental to the assignment that he was given. It would be these sons of Levi that would help Ezra with the teaching of the word of God. So without them, it would have been extremely difficult, if not impossible, to actually fulfill the assignment that he was given. Lack of careful planning would be detrimental to our vision as well. Even though this planning piece isn't as sexy, we still need to do it if the work is going to get done. Those of you that have been around here for a while, you know probably not much would get done here on a Sunday morning without the work that Joel Bickford does to plan the liturgy each week. You know the struggle that our church would have without the planning that Brent Norwood does for the financial health of our church. You know that our Sacred City kids wouldn't thrive without the planning that Emily Arguello does and her team of volunteers. We know the Tates do all the planning for Sacred City youth, Kurt with the media team, and really all the planning that Ben Mosbeck does for everything in this church to happen. We've had men plan to help our MCs thrive. We've had women plan to have Bible studies for the other women in our church. There's lots of planning that goes on that makes this thing happen. And I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of it that happens. Having a thriving covenant community, yes, takes the spirit of God. Yes, it takes vision, but ultimately would fail without careful planning. If we're going to continue the movement to move the kingdom of God forward in our cities, we can never forget about this important piece of stewarding God's provision properly. God's provision being stewarded properly takes planning. And that provision is our last piece, our last significant piece we see in this passage. We saw, we've been seeing over the course of the past few months, how God has been involved really throughout the entire book of Ezra. Here's just a few examples. Ezra chapter one, verse one says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Chapter one, verse two, the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of earth. Chapter five, verse five, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. Chapter six, verse 22, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. God provided four pagan kings He provided through pagan kings. He provided for his people through elders. He provided for his people through prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. He provided for his people through feasts. We see it over and over again, the Lord providing. 
And finally, we see here in chapter 7, three different times this phrase, the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. Ezra, and we will see the same thing when we get to Nehemiah, never fails to remember God's hand in what he's doing. We can see this as an example to follow. Always acknowledging God's provision in any type of success we may have in our pursuit of carrying out that mission. But instead of it just being lip service, we need to actually believe it and see it as necessary. If we are going to have any success at all, we need to see the provision of God as necessary. Psalm 127 starts off by saying, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. If anything good is going to happen in this church and through this church for the betterment of this community, it will have to be the Lord that provides it. James 1.17 says, every good gift, that's every good gift, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Again, if anything good is going to happen in our cities, it has to be the Lord that provides it. Now, as we explained in our last point, that doesn't mean that we just leave our work up to the Lord, right? Not carefully plan, not work hard, but it does mean that we need to trust in the Lord in that planning and that hard work. That's one major thing that we can take from this passage in terms of provision, but something specific. I think there's an example of God's provision from this passage that I want us, that I want us to see because I think it's important. When Ezra gathered all of these people by this river and camped there for three days, part of his planning included making sure that not only that they had everything in terms of food and water and clothing and everything to make the journey, but he also made sure, as we said, that he had all the people that he needed to complete his assignment in Jerusalem. And in verse 15, we see, as I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. So this is interesting. The Israelite people were quite familiar with what was already happening in Jerusalem. Over 40,000 of them, including some Levites within that 40,000, had already left 20 years prior to this time. And no doubt there had been reports of what was happening in Jerusalem with all the building of the temple that got back to Babylon. What Ezra was being asked to do would have been enormous news to all the families that were still in Babylon. They would have been given a chance here with this new journey to leave Babylon and to go back to their homeland, a homeland that had already been radically changed in the past 20 years with the rebuilding of the temple. So think about this. For these sons of Levi, who had a very specific and important role in the proper worship of God, you would think that this would have been an amazing opportunity for them. Especially because, as we learned last week, anybody who was engaged in temple service were completely exempted from all taxes. But what we see here is none of them decided to join the community that Ezra gathered. None of them. This was a problem. Because as we mentioned before, back in chapter 6, when we talked about the Passover, the Levites were important in the Passover celebration. No sons of Levi, no proper celebration of the Passover. In addition to that role, they had both daily and weekly duties and sacrificial rituals. They were on duty in the temple for a week at a time from one Sabbath to the next with most of the responsibilities being carried out on that Sabbath. Remember, one of the most important things that was happening with these people going back was the proper worship of God. That had to be first. No sons of Levi, no proper worship of God. And one of the most important, of course, was these men, it was these men who were supposed to be instrumental when Ezra returned and helping Ezra teach the word of God to the covenant community. Now, the Bible doesn't give us the reason for these sons of Levi being reluctant to go, so we can only speculate. But whatever the reason may be, all we know is there were none of them present with this group that Ezra had gathered. So here's what I want us to see in all of that. God didn't provide these sons of Levi at this time. God didn't bring these sons of Levi. We don't really know why. Again, this section of scripture is a little weird and, and un, unimportant, it seems, in, in the overall story of God. But what Levi, what, what I want us to see is that God didn't provide these people, but how did Ezra respond to that? 
God doesn't provide something that is necessary. How does Ezra respond? He recognized that there weren't any present, understands that them having none wouldn't go well for the assignment that he was given. So he responds by trying to figure out how to get some of these men to come. His idea, again, careful thought, careful planning, was to send the leading men that we talked about, the men of insight that we talked about, to another leading man to try to influence some of these sons of Levi into joining his mission. We see that in verse 16. Not going to read it because there's a lot of names in there that I don't want to mess up. But what we do see is that these leading men, these men of insight, were effective at influencing these men. Commentators believe that the leading men more than likely brought community pressure on these sons of Levi, encouraging them by telling them to think less of themselves and more about the health of the Israelite community. So think community over individual. The men of insight were more than likely teachers or interpreters of the law, so they would have been able to show these sons of Levi the moral and biblical argument for why they should go back to Jerusalem and take on the role that they were supposed to work there. So think about that. Not how you feel, but what the Bible says. All of that was necessary. Community pressure, biblical pressure for this to be effective. But what else do we see there in verse 18? It says, and by the good hand of our God on us, these men were provided. And by the good hand of our God on us. So although God didn't provide these sons of Levi in the beginning, even though he would have known more than any one of those, those people how important they were going to be in the proper worship of God, he decides to provide them eventually. So here's what we can see. Sometimes... God's provision doesn't come until we ask or until we go after something, trusting that he's going to bless that work. Sometimes God's provision doesn't come until we ask or until we go after something, trusting that he's going to bless that work. That's what we see from Ezra. Sometimes we have to ask. Sometimes we have to step out in faith and go after something, trusting that God's going to provide. So if we could dream a little bit about what a Christian society in our area would look like. We need more Christian people. Which, by the way, next week is our Good Friday and Easter Sunday service. What an amazing time for, you, for those of you that know people who are not yet Christian people, who have not heard the gospel message and responded in faith, that's an amazing time to bring them here so that they can see the story of God, they can see what the gospel message is, hear it, and hopefully be able to respond in faith. So get those cards, bring people to these gatherings that are coming up. We need Christian people. We also need more Christian families. We need more churches who preach the gospel and renew the city. We need more Christian businesses. We need more Christian schools, colleges, universities. We need more Christians in entertainment, writing songs, writing plays, directing movies. We need more Christian doctors. We need more Christian coaches. We need more Christian accountants and restaurant owners. And of course, more Christians in the civil government. We don't have much of that right now. God hasn't provided it up until this point. But can we follow Ezra's example here and respond by doing some careful thinking, some careful planning about how, how all of that can happen and then go after it as we're asking for the Lord to have his hand on it? That's our plan here at Sacred City Church. We don't have those things. God hasn't provided them yet, but we're not, again, just going to sit on our hands and wait. We're going to go after these things, trusting that God is going to provide in the future. Now, you may ask, as I close here, how can we be confident that all of that is going to happen? How can we be so optimistic? Because I, I hope you know that there's some Christians who are not that optimistic, Right? There's some Christians who don't believe that God's kingdom is going to come here as it is in heaven. Again, they're just waiting. They're sitting on their hands and waiting for Christ to return. That's not what we believe. We are more optimistic than that. Well, we don't actually know if all, anything that we set out to do is actually going to happen, but 
here's why we can be optimistic. I think that there's two big reasons we can be optimistic. First, we can look back and see everything that God has done for and through people in our history. We can look at everything that he's done in the past. We can look back at what he's done here in Ezra and Nehemiah. We can look back at what he did in the time of the apostles, the early church, the Reformation, and the revivals, like the Great Awakening. We can look back at all those things and see that God has been faithful the entire time. But most importantly, we can look back and see that he provided for us what he provided for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For 400 years, he was silent. No interaction with his people. But after that 400 years of silence, what happened? I, I can just imagine for 400 years, people are praying for God's provision, right? They knew the Messiah was coming. They were praying, bring the Messiah to us, right? 400 years, he was silent. But after 400 years, what happens? God moves. God provides. After 400 years, one day, he sends an angel to the Virgin Mary and tells her that she would bear a son. This son was the one that was prophesied by Isaiah when he told the people of Israel in Isaiah 9 that although they were walking in darkness, one day they would see a great light. For to them a child was to be born. To them a son was to be given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. God, through Isaiah, told his people what was going to happen, and then he did it. It took a while, as far as our timing goes, but he did it. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So we can look back and we can see that God is faithful to his promises and God is faithful to his people. And there's no better example than him sending his son to do what his son did. But that brings us to the second reason why I think we can be optimistic. This passage in Isaiah 9 tells us so much. If we keep going in Isaiah 9, verse 7, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This passage in Isaiah tells us everything we need to know about being optimistic. What we just read there is the Christianization of this world. It's the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And here's what's amazing, is we get to be part of that. We get to be part of God's story. We get to be instruments in his hand that he's going to use to see that happen. That's what he's called us to in the Great Commission. He called us to something that not only he wants to see happen, but he's also given us everything that we need to do to make it happen. But he also tells us how it's going to happen. Look at the last line of Isaiah 9 there. The last line of Isaiah 9, after he just told us that God is the, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. Justice, righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's why we can be optimistic. He's going to see it through. We have a God who not only has died for us and rose for us, so that we could be forgiven and brought into his presence. Remember that this morning, right? We don't want to miss that. We still have a God who's died for us and who's forgiven us and brings us into his presence. And if you've never made the decision to, to believe that this morning, if you're here and you've never repented of your sins and believed upon Christ for faith, by faith, in him for your salvation, then I would encourage you to do that this morning. But here's what we also need to remember. All of us in this room need to remember who have done that, 
that we also have a, who have a God who is with us in the work that he's called us to. We have a God who never leaves us and never forsakes us, and that's not just our salvation. It's in the work that he's given us to do. And as I said, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That means he's passionate about what he's about to do. He's passionate about what he's going to do in us and through us. That's why we can be optimistic. Will we join him in that passion? Will we be a people who are faithful in what he's called us to do, no matter what that role is, no matter what giftings he's given you, no matter what he's called you to do in life, will we be faithful to what he's called us to do? Remembering that every step of the way, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is always with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is, is amazing truth to remember. That you don't leave us or forsake us. That you told us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you, and then you gave us the job to do of going and discipling nations and baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that you commanded to us. And then you tell us that you're going to be with us till the end of the age. Would you put that on our hearts? Would we remember that you never leave us, that you're always near? Lord, and that's what this gathering is. We're kind of called out of whatever we're believing and whatever we're living for, whatever we're worshiping throughout the week, and we're called back into worshiping you. Lord, we're brought up into your courts, and we're called to remember that better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We're called to remember that we're here for you and you alone. That's what our life is about. So Lord, would you apply these truths to our hearts this morning so that we can leave here ready, knowing that you're with us and ready to go and do the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.